Hello, this is Dr. Carolyn Deitch. I'm a psychologist practicing in Michigan where I founded and direct the Center for the Treatment of Anxiety Disorders. I also write, teach, and present on the subjects of anxiety disorders, affect regulation, as well as couples therapy. In my 30 years or so of treating clients with anxiety disorders, I am awed by the courage it takes to cope with what is often crippling anxiety. The most basic activities that most of us enjoy without thinking about it, such as driving a car on the expressway or perhaps attending a wedding reception, or even eating dinner in a restaurant, can be intensely painful, if not impossible, for people who have anxiety disorders. Worse even than the limitations on their activities is the profound shame that so many people with anxiety disorders feel every day of their lives. They may cover it up with cheerfulness or nonchalance, but truly shame eats away at them. And in recent years, I've discovered that many of these clients have yet another problem. I've noticed that on top of the worry, physical symptoms, avoidance of activities that go hand in hand with anxiety, many of my clients demonstrate considerable difficulty concentrating. These problems often go beyond the mild to moderate issues with concentration that plague many of us from time to time. Because it turns out that 25% of adults with anxiety disorders also have comorbid attention deficit disorder with or without hyperactivity. And 30 to 40% of children who have a diagnosis of ADHD also present with an anxiety disorder. These clients often can't get their schoolwork done, or they have job performance problems. They have trouble staying on task of housework and managing personal finances. Their relationships are sometimes in trouble, and they experience heightened anxiety as a result of their attentional deficits. Conversely, the symptoms that accompany anxiety disorders can also exacerbate the concentration and impulse control problems that are central to ADHD. What's more, clients often seek treatment for one disorder without any awareness that a second disorder is compounding their symptoms. I became more and more interested in exploring treatment options for these people as I saw client after client express self-criticism, self-recrimination, and again, more shame that came as a result of their combined avoidance, worry, procrastination, and disorganization. As a result of their comorbid disorders, they repeatedly failed to meet their own goals and expectations, as well as those of their families, teachers, and employers, who typically just didn't understand them and all too often were harshly critical of them. In my talk today, I'll be emphasizing the importance of assessing for the presence of ADD or ADHD in clients who present with anxiety, and the importance of treating this comorbid symptom presentation with interventions that simultaneously address anxiety and attentional deficits. This is one case in which the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And rather than simply interspersing an intervention geared to treat anxiety with an intervention for ADHD, 
I believe it's really important to provide clients with interventions geared to address their combined symptom presentation. And as I've spent my career utilizing hypnotherapeutic interventions to enhance treatment outcomes for virtually almost all of my clients, I will be specifically exploring hypnotic adjuncts that I use to address comorbid anxiety and ADHD. What I want to cover today is an overview of anxiety disorders and ADHD, in which I'll outline the unique features of the different disorders and then highlight some of their similarities. I'll talk about treatment goals and a rationale for using hypnosis in these cases, and I'll introduce you to some hypnotic techniques to address the needs of this population. And lastly, I'll speak to integrating mindfulness approaches in the treatment. There are two main components of anxiety that I wish to address today. One, challenges with attentional allocation, and two, challenges with affect dysregulation. Regarding attentional allocation, people with anxiety disorders demonstrate a preoccupation with fear-related stimuli. And this focus on fear obviously impedes attention. Say a person has to attend an important staff meeting for work. It's a required meeting. But if a spider is crawling around the boardroom during that meeting, a person with specific phobia of spiders won't be able to attend what's going on in the meeting, but rather will direct all attention toward monitoring the location of that spider and worrying if that spider is coming closer to them. Now, a person with generalized anxiety disorder who, while sitting in that same staff meeting, notices that he or she is maybe slightly out of breath. Perhaps this person was rushing to get to the meeting because they're late. And they might start directing attention to monitoring their breath and begin to worry that the difficulty in breathing is an indicator of some impending medical emergency. This person might start saying, Oh my gosh! It's winter. This could be pneumonia. I should really be leaving this meeting and calling my doctor right away. Or wait a minute. I know somebody just my age who got diagnosed with lung cancer. Could it be lung cancer? A whole torrent of catastrophic thoughts could be coming for the person with GAD. And again, this person is obviously not paying attention to what's being talked about. Let's say there's a person with panic disorder or perhaps social anxiety disorder. These people might not even make it to the staff meeting at all due to escalating anticipatory anxiety regarding possibly having a panic attack during the staff meeting for the person with panic disorder, or due to an overwhelming fear of being seen and judged by others for the person with social anxiety disorder. Thus, rather than being able to direct attention ahead of time toward planning for the staff meeting so they'd be prepared when called upon, both of these individuals attended to a whole bunch of fearful cognitions regarding even going to the staff meeting. Let's talk a little bit about affect dysregulation. Individuals with anxiety also demonstrate an inability to regulate arousal, which leads to the hyperactivation of the autonomic nervous system or ANS, and the experience of effective flooding. Problems related to affect dysregulation also result in hypersensitivity to innocuous stimuli and maintain states of hyperarousal that are a lot longer 
than for those people without anxiety. If you'd like to learn more about affect dysregulation and specific techniques to help regulate affect, I'd recommend that you look at my book, The Affect Regulation Toolbox, where I explore this theme in detail. A better understanding of affect dysregulation can be gained from our colleagues over in the field of neuroscience. The anxiety response itself is associated with the activation of one particular branch of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, or the SNS. The SNS can be thought of as the gas pedal of your nervous system, revving up your engines in order to defend yourself. So when confronted with a fearful stimulus, which the body perceives as a threat, the SNS revs the body into fight-flight mode. Your heartbeat increases, blood flow to the extremities decrease, and it pours into organs like your heart and large muscles that will help you mobilize to either defend yourself or flee. The majority of the uncomfortable and disconcerting physical components of the anxiety response are a result of the SNS kicking into action and gearing up to protect you from any physical danger. Now, the parasympathetic nervous system, or PNS on the other hand, can be thought of as your nervous system's brakes. The PNS is another branch of the autonomic nervous system, and it works to counter the revving effects of the SNS and calm the body. In fact, many of the interventions I'll be talking about later in this course work by teaching clients to engage the PNS and put the brakes on the anxiety revving SNS activation. Okay, back to our friends in neuroscience. We learn from them that studies of the brain's wiring and firing are showing that anxiety and the revving of the sympathetic nervous system is very easy to acquire. But unfortunately, once the brain circuits are in place, they're harder to delete. But there are techniques that you can use that are very effective. They're difficult to delete in part because of the way the brain works. Brain researcher and author of The Emotional Brain, Joseph Ledoux, noted that the wiring of the brain at this point in our evolution is established so that connections from the emotional systems to the cognitive systems are much more developed. So in other words, when the sympathetic nervous system revs on that gas pedal, it's far easier to release emotions and to manage them with reason. So when the stress reactions are triggered, the emotional systems in your brain move into hyperdrive. You tend to overreact, and you start to perceive that you're in danger, even when you're not. Now, I've learned from many things from my esteemed colleague, Michael Yapko, and he succinctly talked about characteristics of people with anxiety. And he said that when people are anxious, they tend to overestimate risks, underestimate their available resources in coping with the perceived threats, and these people are rigid, repeat rigid behavioral patterns. These characteristics can be seen in all the anxiety disorders, whether it be panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, social phobia, specific phobia, or post-traumatic stress disorder. Now let's shift our attention to ADHD. I'd like to give you an overview. 
For the purposes of this talk, I'd like to look at two of the main components of ADD or ADHD, difficulties with attentional allocation and difficulties with impulse control. Further, there are two main challenges with attentional allocation. One, challenges with selective attention and challenges with sustained attention. Let's talk about the brain a little bit. I find I'm a better psychologist if I can get my head around the brain a bit. Challenges with selective attention are associated with the brain's anterior cingulate cortex, ACC, which helps us assess the salience of incoming information. This structure helps us to answer the question, now what is the most important thing for me to attend to right now? There are always competing incoming stimuli, various sights and sounds. For people with ADD, it can be challenging to attend to your boss's presentation at the staff meeting when, say, another co-worker is tapping his pencil. Or maybe your boss is sitting directly in front of a wall hanging that you think is beautiful. And when you attempt to focus your eyes on your boss, you start looking at and then thinking about the wall hanging just above her head. You might think, hey, that looks Asian. Gee, I've always wanted to go to China. But then I hear that Thailand's really interesting. Oh, forget it. I don't have enough money to go on a trip like that. Maybe I should start looking for a better paying job. They don't pay me enough for this job. Obviously not attending to the meeting with those kinds of tangential thoughts. Now, challenges with sustained attention are associated with inefficient information processing in the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, or the DLPFC. I joke with some of my clients that a three-ringed circus is ADHD's worst nightmare. Three different intriguing, visually and auditorily enticing acts performed simultaneously right in front of your eyes. Even people with optimally functioning DLPFC in their brains can have trouble keeping their eyes from jumping from one ring to the other. But this is the quintessential experience for someone living with ADHD. Unfortunately, when your attention jumps from one circus ring to the other in your life, you miss out on the continuity of watching a single act from beginning to end. The challenge in seeing each of these days' acts through from beginning to end is responsible for a lot of the disorganization and task completion difficulties present in ADHD. Impulse control is the second main challenge I'll be talking about in regard to ADHD. People with ADHD have trouble engaging response inhibition. Response inhibition, which is necessary for impulse control, is associated with the orbital frontal cortex, or the OFC. When the OFC functions suboptimally, as it does in ADHD, Individuals demonstrate increased difficulty engaging with distraction. For example, as you sit in your staff meeting and notice the wall hanging directly behind your boss's head, your ability to redirect yourself back to your boss's remarks, reining your attention back in and away from looking at, thinking about, and enjoying the design of the wall hanging is diminished. Now that we've spent some time looking at how anxiety and ADHD are unique, I'd like to shift the focus to their similarities. Both disorders negatively affect attention. With both disorders, attention or focus is not directed toward the given task at hand. 
In both disorders, people display difficulty with situationally appropriate attentional allocation. People with anxiety disorders direct their attention toward fear-related stimuli. And they have a kind of psychophysiological or affective flooding in response to relatively innocuous stimuli. And further, those people with anxiety demonstrate avoidance of that which is distressing or scary. And people with ADHD direct attention toward non-relevant but engaging stimuli. And obviously, in both disorders, individuals have difficulty sticking to the relevant task at hand. I'd like to highlight six treatment goals that are particularly relevant to target when treating clients with these comorbid disorders. It's important to gear your interventions to, first, mastery over self with calming responses. You really want to ideally elicit optimal levels of physiological arousal so that you can have a calm body yet alert mind. Two, enhance self-esteem. It's really important to enhance self-esteem for mitigating shame as well as creating positive expectancy about change. Three, you need to help people develop purposeful focus. And four, to maintain attention and filter distractions. Five, you need to help people develop a kind of inner parent ego state and access that state so that that part of self will help to manage the more vulnerable, frightened, and impulsive childlike parts of self. Six, you want to help them mindfully attend to their symptoms without judgment or overreaction. Now that we have some understanding of the symptomatology present in comorbid anxiety and ADHD, I'm going to spend the majority of our remaining time discussing hypnotic interventions to help these clients, as well as a little bit on mindfulness. But before I launch into a detailed discussion of these interventions, it's important to have a clear understanding of what hypnosis is and why it's especially helpful in the treatment of anxiety disorders and ADHD. People often have a misunderstanding of what hypnosis is. Hypnosis is simply a state of focused attention that is often, but not always, accompanied by relaxation. My colleague, Corey Hammond, a well-known expert in hypnosis, described hypnosis as the art of securing attention and then effectively communicating ideas that enhance motivation and change perceptions. Some people liken it to imagination training, in which you're guided to use your imagination to experience changes in behavior, attitudes, as well as emotions and physical sensations. And interestingly enough, people with anxiety disorders are generally great hypnotic subjects. In hypnosis, a client is at optimal receptivity for suggestion. Some research has shown that cognitive behavioral treatment outcomes significantly improve when hypnosis is used as an adjunctive treatment. Likewise, hypnosis has many benefits that are specific to the treatment of anxiety and ADHD. For the treatment of anxiety, hypnosis can help retrain the autonomic nervous system to better balance sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system activation. Thus, it can help clients lessen the revving of the SNS by engaging the PNS and thus applying 
the autonomic nervous system's brakes. For the treatment of ADHD, hypnosis has been shown to activate the anterior cingulate cortex as well as the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, two areas of the brain whose compromised functioning is implicated in ADHD. I'd like to remind you that we talked about earlier that the anterior cingulate cortex is involved in selective attention and the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex is involved in sustained attention. In order to illustrate some hypnotic techniques which address comorbid anxiety and ADHD, I'm going to be talking about a case in which these techniques came into play. I was referred to a young woman whom I'll call Laura, who had just flunked her first year of medical school and she was put on academic probation and given an opportunity to repeat the year. Despite bouts of distractibility and her typical habit of getting in most of her studying in the 11th hour, and the fact that she tended to be high-strung, or at least she said, Laura was bright enough to get into a good college, get through undergrad courses, and get accepted to a medical school, which is no small feat. But med school was a different story. The workload was heavy and the competition stiff. Laura's disorganization, procrastination, and tendency to accept social invitations or watch TV when she had initially planned to be studying prevented her from typically preparing adequately for her exams. With one of her first exams, she realized at one point that she really wasn't prepared and she was totally stumped by some of the questions. And at that point, Laura had her first full-blown panic attack, and she froze, and she was unable to complete the test. Unfortunately, Laura went on to develop panic disorder in response to this first scary panic attack. A primary component of panic disorder is a fear of the places or situations that have previously elicited the panic attack. And this results in the behavioral avoidance of stimuli that are potentially panic-inducing. They often generalize to an avoidance of the stimuli that are associated with the environment in which the initial panic attack took place. Laura, for example, developed a fear of test-taking situations, and this behavioral avoidance generalized to test preparation. In this case, unfortunately, studying. So now, on top of her ADHD-related procrastination and time allocation challenges, Laura would freeze or have a panic attack when she finally did get herself to sit down to study. And worse yet, she also continued to have panic attacks during exams. When I first met her, she took a deep breath and looked down and said in a soft voice, I'm so afraid that I'll fail again that I just don't have the goods, I won't make it. You've got to understand, Dr. Deitch, I've wanted to be a doctor since I was 10. And I looked at her and smiled and said, I'll do my best to help you. At this point, I did mention to Laura that she might want to consider an evaluation with a psychiatrist, that many of my clients responded very well to medication that targeted both anxiety and attentional issues. But Laura said no, that she really wanted to work at other approaches that would help her, and that she might reconsider medication at another time, but not now. The interventions that I used with Laura included a self-hypnotic protocol, as well as some mindfulness training. 
Hypnosis, again, is all about absorption, focus, and concentration, and by its very nature can be very calming. So it's a particularly good intervention for this population. Now, when I talked about hypnosis, Laura, like many anxious people, was afraid she would lose control in trance. And I reassured her that, ironically, hypnosis was the ultimate way of gaining self-control. And that most people with anxiety disorders are excellent hypnotic subjects. Laura, like many people who are anxious and have ADHD, wanted interventions that created a response as quickly. So with this in mind, I selected a technique that was easily learned, expedient, and could quickly interrupt anxiety and the avoidance behaviors which followed. For that purpose, I taught Laura a technique called the eye roll. The eye roll was initially developed by renowned psychiatrist and professor of medicine, Dr. Herbert Spiegel, as a way of assessing an individual's ability to be hypnotized. But it's also a quick, effective tool to help clients focus attention and interrupt a negative response. The eye roll involves three steps. One, first looking up at the eyebrows, rolling the eyes up as far as possible. Two, holding the eyes in this position for about 10 seconds. And then finally, taking a deep breath and exhaling to let out tension. I typically suggest that people float inside, perhaps using imagery like floating on a cloud or on an air mattress in a pool or a lake. Or if they're not good at visualizing, just to kind of feel floaty until they elicit a nice, relaxed feeling. I do want to say that not everybody is comfortable with the eye roll. It's not a good idea to use it with people who've had eye surgery or people with hard contact lenses sometimes have difficulty with it. And there's a few people who don't like the feeling of rolling their eyes up. But most people are comfortable with it, as Laura was. And I taught Laura, as I do my other clients, to immediately initiate an eye roll whenever she was beginning to become triggered or distracted. Now, the second step in the protocol was aimed at self-soothing and eliciting relaxation. Once someone is able to interrupt a negative response and focus his or her attention, I provide them with techniques to induce relaxation. Slow breathing is a simple and effective way of doing this. Unless we're out of breath or focusing attention or holding the breath, it's natural that we don't tend to take much note of our breathing. But by attending to your breath and employing breathing exercises that get your breathing slow and you start to breathe deeply and slowly, you can quickly begin to diffuse an anxiety response by maintaining optimal levels of oxygen and carbon dioxide and thereby giving your body one of the ingredients it needs to generate sensations of calm and relaxation. There are many different types of breathing exercises that you can use to help promote relaxation responses. One of my favorites is four square breathing. It's a particularly good method if your mind easily wanders during less structured breathing approaches such as mindful breathing. And all it requires is the ability to count to four. In order to use this technique, you simply have the client sit comfortably, breathe into the count of four, hold to the count of four, and exhale to the count of four. After exhaling, you hold again to the count of four before inhaling and beginning the process anew.
Typically, I suggest that people do this for about 10 cycles or until they feel calm. For Laura, I helped the process as well by uh, visualization. She was pretty good at that. So I first drew a square on a piece of paper and handed it to her. And then I had her close her eyes and imagine the square and imagine drawing a line up vertically on the left side of the square as she inhaled. And then drawing another line on the top of the square as she held the breath to the count of four. And then draw a line going down vertically on the right side of the square as she exhaled to four. And then draw a line on the bottom as she paused for four. This exercise worked very well for Laura because it kept her mind occupied when worry thoughts were taking over. Sometimes, however, breath work is not enough. Some people, especially those with anxiety disorders, carry a lot of muscular tension and are sometimes too agitated to respond to suggestions to relax. When this is the case, I teach them the tight fist or clenched fist technique. This technique of tightening the fist can quickly discharge anxiety, fear, or worry. I used this technique with Laura as she, like many of my clients, was sometimes so anxious that she couldn't focus on her breathing. To begin, I directed Laura to imagine that all of her uncomfortable emotions were going into one of her hands. It didn't matter which one. And then I asked her to make a fist with that hand, squeezing it tightly, tightly, allowing herself to take as much time as she needed to let all of her negative emotions drain into this one tiny space in her body. And then I suggested that she magnified the tension, tightening her fist more and more. And once the tension was heightened, I asked Laura to pretend that the tension was being transformed into a liquid, into a colored liquid, a liquid color that represented her distress, her panic, her worry, or any other uncomfortable emotions. And then I suggested that she gradually release the tension in her fists, release her fingers, and pretend that the stress-filled colored liquid was flowing down to the floor in my office. And then down under the carpeting, and down under the floorboards, and down underneath the cement, and further down deep into the soil beneath the building where it was cleansed, detoxified, and released. The next step was to deepen the relaxation. A very commonly used technique in guided imagery and hypnosis is the safe place. You've probably heard of it. Although common, it's very effective for some clients who wish to induce or deepen relaxation. Laura was asked to identify a memory of a place that she found soothing. She, like many people, found being by the ocean comforting. Hypnosis can enhance the safe place exercise as it's so effective in eliciting the sensory associations, in other words, evoking the sounds, smells, sights, and feelings in the body that are connected to the experience. And once she was able to elicit a safe place, we used a kinesthetic anchor. This is a cue that we use 
that involve pressing the thumb and forefinger to create the commonly used hand gesture of an OK signal. The OK signal was used as an anchor that re-elicited the calm state. An anchor stimulates a revivification of a previously experienced phenomenological state. While these cues can be words or images, I frequently like to use the kinesthetic association of the OK signal to help remind clients such as Laura that they are OK in the present moment. In fact, we need to remind ourselves that we're all OK in this moment. It's only the next moment or the next week or the next month that we're worried about. I encourage you to look at the work of Grinder and Bandler in, of 1981 for a thorough discussion of anchoring. And the next step in the protocol was ego strengthening. Ego strengthening involves empowering a stronger part of the self to help control worry, catastrophic thinking, as well as avoidance responses. We need ego strength to help us maintain emotional stability and to cope with stress, be it internal or external. Ego strengthening interventions can help clients look at those positive aspects of ourselves that are true. Other people can see them, but perhaps we overlook them or undervalue them. This is a prominent theme of the brilliant work of Milton H. Erickson. Ego strengthening techniques also help us access a center or core self that is calm and rational and good. My colleagues Claire Frederick and Shirley McNeil write about the strong inner self, and I encourage you to look at their writings of 1999. And also, ego-strengthening techniques help us access an inner advisor. To achieve these ends, I often use the hypnotic phenomena of age regression and age progression, as well as intervention using parts of self or ego-states. Age regression can be useful in helping clients revivify experiences of mastery, such as universals like learning to walk or, for most people, learning to ride a bike. You help people remind themselves that they acquired skills before, so we can plant the idea that the person can indeed learn anew. In other words, you mastered that, you learned that, so you can learn this and master that. I directed Laura to revivify challenges that she overcame like the experience of passing that difficult organic chemistry course as an undergrad or taking those daunting boards, those MCATs during her final year of undergraduate school. Age progression can help clients increase positive expectancy for the future. Now, people with anxiety are already really good at moving into the future, specifically thinking about what can go wrong in the future. And using this already established skill of thinking ahead, I had Laura imagine in her mind's eye to hit the fast forward button to jump to the next track in her life. I said, allow yourself to hit play and see yourself in the very near future calm serene, and very much okay. The panic, anxiety, worry will have passed and see yourself engaged calmly and productively in your study activities. When flooded with anxiety, it's hard to remember 
that there will be a time when these symptoms will pass. So it can be helpful to have your clients visualize a time in the future when they'll feel confident, competent, when they've overcome obstacles, reached their goals. I had Laura focus on a time when she would be consistently focused and attentive as she studied, when she was confident in her ability to manage her time, when she was satisfied in her performances on exams. I then had Laura fast forward to having successfully completed the school year and having become a consistently disciplined student. And then, fast forwarding even further, having been admitted to her first choice of medical specialties in a top residency program. The next interventions involve parts of self. Parts of self interventions help clients recognize the different emotional and developmental states or ego states that reside within. In doing so, clients can mitigate emotional reactivity by accessing and empowering mature parts of self and providing comfort and reassurance to the younger scared parts of self. You need to let your clients know that multiple ego states are not indicative of psychopathology. Rather, the existence of these multiple personas are components of the healthful psychological functioning of any individual. Often clients with ADHD let their impulsive childlike ego states drive the car while people with anxiety let their vulnerable, frightened, avoidant child take over. And so with both disorders, it's important to convey that there is indeed a part of self that is strong, that is balanced, that is mature, that lives side by side with the childlike states. And I found that with hypnosis, it's easier sometimes to convey these ideas that they really can access the more mature ego states or parts of self that can provide guidance and discipline and a kind of firm parenting to the more impulsive parts of self and that the more developed part of self can guide and advise and comfort the more vulnerable and fearful parts of self. Eventually, Laura was able to access those mature, strong parts of herself that could take charge when she felt like procrastinating, when she felt like watching TV or answering emails, or when she began to experience that awful anticipatory anxiety or test-related panic. I also asked Laura to get in touch with her inner advisor, a mature part of self that could guide her when she encountered problems prioritizing. This is a challenge for people with ADHD. When feeling overwhelmed with too much work and too many projects, I asked Laura to stop and ask her inner advisor, what is the most important thing that I need to do now? And just wait in stillness for the answer. And the answer I suggested, would always come. Once these visualizations were elicited, I further directed Laura to experience the satisfaction and confidence and relief that would come along with these accomplishments. 
to really feel the feelings in the present tense that would accompany the success. The next step in Laura's self-hypnosis protocol was establishing a verbal anchor using keywords. Just as the okay signal was used as an anchor to re-elicit the feeling that all is okay, phrases such as calm and relaxed or concentrate now or I'm in charge of my brain can serve as an anchor in a cognitive manner. I had Laura identify phrases that would be helpful to her in reminding her that she was in charge of her mind and her behavior. Then we developed another anchor. This was another kinesthetic anchor, but it was combined with some words as well. I directed Laura to put her forefinger and her middle finger between her eyebrows and to press firmly in that spot. After letting about five seconds pass with her fingers in place, I had her imagine that she was experiencing a kind of warm and tingling feeling, almost as if she was sending energy to her frontal cortex. And with her finger still in place, she was to put her other hand on her belly right below her navel. And with both hands in place, she was to say the phrase, concentrate now. Now, I find this technique works as the fingers between the eyebrows create an association of using the frontal brain, being in charge of the brain. Because that part of the brain is the center for command and control. And then the hand on the belly seems to work because it provides people with a feeling that they are contained. And by putting the hand firmly on the belly, they can elicit a sense of being centered and strong. And then at this point, I also gave her additional examples of self-talk that she could use as she created these kinesthetic anchors. Like again, I'm in charge of my brain and further suggested that she take a moment to just sense how good that felt being in charge of her brain. And then I gave Laura a post-hypnotic suggestion that she could utilize her new kinesthetic anchor that any time in the future that she wished she could re-elicit this warm and tingly feeling, this feeling of being in charge by placing her forefinger and middle middle finger to the space between her eyebrows and her hand on her belly thereby eliciting the feeling that she was in control. Now, the last part of any good hypnotic protocol, I believe, is behavioral rehearsal. Once a client acquires new tools, it's imperative that he or she put them into use. So this behavioral rehearsal and visualization component of the hypnotic protocol can greatly enhance their ability to implement these techniques outside the office. So the rehearsal involved visualizing, enacting ideal behaviors. In Laura's case, seeing herself studying. And once again, imagining that she was feeling successful, experiencing in the present moment the desired emotional states that would occur later when she was studying successfully. In Laura's case, she wanted to feel satisfaction and release 
In addition to hypnosis, I also introduced the concept of mindfulness to Laura. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is complete engagement in the present moment. It may seem in some ways that a mindfulness approach is contradictory to a hypnotic approach. With hypnosis, the goal was mastery of the symptoms, and with mindfulness, the goal was acceptance of the symptoms rather than fixing them. But I found that there's a place in treatment for each of these powerful approaches. Mindfulness is very applicable to people with comorbid anxiety and ADHD because when you're completely engaged in the present moment, you aren't worried about the future and you are paying attention to what you need to do now. And mindfulness practices can improve clients' ability to control attention. When you're mindful, it's easier to notice, to catch yourself that your attention has wandered away from your task. It actually teaches you to pay attention to paying attention. And it also teaches an attitude of non-reactivity to inner experience. Laura used her well-trained scientific mind to be an observer of her thoughts. I taught her to say to herself, this feeling of anxiety comes and goes. It changes just like the weather. I know this feeling will pass in a few minutes. I don't have to like it, but it will pass. And I can handle a few minutes of discomfort. In her last session, Laura brought me a poem. It was a poem written by the Muslim poet, jurist, theologian, and Sufi mystic Rumi. And I'll read it to you now. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows, Treat each guest honorably. They may be cleaning out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Laura was successful that next year in med school. I heard from her a couple years later, and she told me she had been accepted in a top-rated residency program. And in what specialty? Psychiatry. She told me she wanted to help others with anxiety disorders. This brings us to the end of this presentation. I want to thank you for your time and attention. If you're interested in more techniques and interventions, you can access a list of my publications and my teaching schedule on my website, www.anxietysolutionsonline.com, and also on http://anxiety-treatment.com. If you're interested in a more in-depth discussion of my approaches, you can take a look at two of my books, The Affect Regulation Toolbox and my new book, Anxiety Disorders, the Go-To Guide for Clients and Therapists. And now, before I sign off, I'd like to leave you with a few final thoughts. It's so important for you to mitigate the shame, 
that people with anxiety and ADHD experience and to convince them that they do not have a character flaw. Instead, they have disorders. And these disorders are amenable to treatment. It's also important for you to build up positive expectancy that your clients can learn techniques to help them manage their lives with less distress. And lastly, you as a practitioner don't need to do all these techniques perfectly in order to be effective. And likewise, it's important that you communicate to your clients that they don't need to tackle all of their work or school assignments with perfection. In fact, we know that perfection is the enemy of the good as the drive for perfection often creates unnecessary anxiety and leads to procrastination and avoidance. Thank you again for your time. It's been an honor talking to you today.